For the last 16 messages have tried to impress upon you the importance of this key concept, that Jesus is the core, He's the center of the universe, He's the heart of the redemptive plan of God. You don't make Him core, He is core. You don't make Him center, He is center. You don't make Him Lord, He is Lord. It's simply a statement of fact. It's a reality whether you agree with it or not. Like... The Colts are better than the Bears. It's just a fact, right? I just had to throw that in this morning, okay? Long jump from Jesus to Colts, but it was worth a shot, right? The fact of the matter is, is there are certain truths in the Bible that they're just plain true, and you don't make them more or less true. The issue is whether or not you bend the knee to them or not. And the whole point of this series in the book of Colossians has been to try and get that truth into the center of our heart so we can then learn how to live it out. The series that we've been in, this section called Jesus-Centered Thinking, has taken us through some glorious texts where we've dealt with the idea of how do we think rightly about the person of Jesus. We were warned about spiritual drift in chapter 2, verses 8 and 10, where good things that used to lead us to Christ end up being the very things that we trust in. We, we learned about what it means to be circumcised in Christ and this positional reality, what it meant to, to live inside of the person of Christ. When he died, we died. We'll see that again this morning. We, we celebrated the fact that Jesus brings people from death to life. I and mean, that was like one of my most favorite Sundays to date here, as we just got after the celebration of the fact that Jesus took us from spiritual darkness and he made us new and filled with life. Remember, we ended the service by singing, In Christ Alone. It's a glorious Sunday. And then I also highlighted for you the idea of legalism, and that is the way in which it is destructive and deceptive, and at the bottom line, why it leads to destructive and very dangerous self-worship. And I tried to help you understand that legalism is incredibly dangerous and why it's really important for us to ask ourselves, Lord, am I creating my own self-made religion? This morning, we're going to close this series of Jesus-centered thinking by asking ourselves this question, what do we live for? I mean, what really motivates us? What's the driver in our life? Or, let me put it this way, what do you want? I mean, really, what do you really want out of life? What motivates your marriage? Why would you ask forgiveness of your sins? Why do you give money? Why should we be concerned about the yada of people? What's the reason? What's the point? And the answer will be, is that at the end of the day, life is not about me. It's about Jesus. At the end of the day, Life is about Jesus, not me. Say that with me. Life is about Jesus, not me. Say it again. Life is about Jesus, not me. Do you know that that's really important for your marriage to get that idea in there? It's really important how you raise kids. It's important to have your kids know this concept that life is about Jesus, not you. The whole world doesn't spin around you, son. And mom and dads, we've got to figure out a way to demonstrate that to our children in practical and tangible ways. We're moving now into a a next section in this passage next week called Jesus-Centered Living. And this is going to be a great section. be a great time for you to invite somebody who's not been in church for a while or maybe they're looking for a church home because we're going to get really practical. We're going to take this idea of Jesus-Centered Living, Jesus-Centered Ministry, and Christ being the core, and we're going to flesh this thing out and how we do marriage and what it means to bring Christ into the center of your workplace and what it means to put off old things that shouldn't be a part of our life anymore. Uh, sinful habits and patterns and what it means to put on new things that is the whole reason why Jesus redeemed us. 
This morning, though, I want to do a message that bridges this idea of Jesus-centered thinking and Jesus-centered living. And essentially, the idea that we're talking about today is what does it mean to be Jesus-centered in the whole orb of our life? Or rather, what does it mean for us to have the right foundation undergirding our lives and then the right focus such that we live for the right stuff? Because I don't know about you, I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to seek after the wrong things. And Paul calls us to seek those things that are above. In other words, he calls us to a holistic pursuit of Jesus where our attitudes, our actions, our mind, our heart, our will, our whole outlook are all focused on Christ. I'm going to do some some illustrating this morning, uh, some illustrating this morning on the board. And, And here's what I want you to think about it in this way. If Jesus is the center, that's a cross, then every part of my life, my marriage, my money, my church, every part of my life revolves around the person and work of Christ. That He's the one that becomes the center of the world, not me. And what i got to realize is I'm in orbit around Him. I'm not the center. And my money orbits around Christ, not me. My kids orbit around Jesus. I'm a steward of the orbit of their life around Him. And this morning, this text helps us to realize that, look, that's what we need to set our minds on. That's the reality of the world in which we live, says the Bible. And therefore, those who know these things seek this realm of Jesus-centeredness where the full orb of your life revolves around Christ. This morning, we're going to center around three key words that are kind of building blocks. We're going to talk about truth at the foundation The target, or what do we need to be focused on, and then trust. So what is the truth that's undergirding my life? What is the target that I need to focus on? And then lastly, how do I really make some of this work? And I hope to give you some things that maybe this week, some practical ways that maybe in one or two ways you could just set your mind in a new and a fresh way. I I, I long for you to find some creative ways to make this text work and to apply it in your world and in your life today. Because what we have here is really important. So let's begin. Truth. We begin by celebrating the spiritual foundations of life. Undergirding all of this that we're talking about this morning is truth. And what I want you to know is that Christianity essentially is a a relationship with Christ based upon propositional truths. It's based upon statements within the scripture that we believe to be true and our life is built on them. So you can think of it this way. Here is you in life and underneath you are a series of propositional truths communicated to us in the Bible, and these propositional truths serve as the foundation upon which we live, move, and have our being. The Bible is the kind of book given to us from God that declares propositional truth, such as, man is sinful, God is holy, there's a judgment to come, and the only way to receive the forgiveness of your sins is by receiving Christ. That's propositional truth. And those things undergird, then, how we live. So, there are some people in this world who don't believe in propositional truth or in absolute truth. They say, well, that's what truth is to you. And one of the reasons you need to know that that's so dangerous is because undergirding the Christian faith is propositional truth. We don't make truth, we receive truth from the Word in our lives. And by the way, just so you know, people who don't believe in absolute truth, they don't believe in it absolutely. (laughs) They don't. Because some of them would say, well, that's what, um, that's what the Bible means to you, but that's not what it means to me. And that's their definition of absolute truth. The problem is, is they don't do that consistently. 
For instance, they, they, they don't do that with their mortgage payment, right? So, you, you know what I mean? Uh, perhaps not. Let me show it to you this way. So they think um, absolute truth means, or not believing in absolute truth means that I can really kind of believe whatever I want. There's really no fixed point that really uh, affixes real truth to it. So they would be really upset, though, if their mortgage company said, you know your monthly payment of uh, $1,500 a month on your house? Well, $1,500 may mean something to you, but to us it means $1,700 a month, right? Now, at that point, they're going to have a problem, right? And they're going to say, no, 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 no. We, we agreed on 1500 See, mortgages and contracts and interest rates have fixed truth amounts, and therefore to not believe in absolute truth is to kind of pick and choose where you decide not to believe it. And the reason why that's so important is that undergirding your relationship with Christ, undergirding our faith commitment, is a, a basic understanding of what is right, what is wrong, what is true, and what is not. In fact, undergirding your life is a theological grid, a system of what you believe, certain things that you believe to be true about God, and about yourself, and about the world. So understand, every single person in this room is a theologian. It's not a matter of whether or not you're a theologian or not. The question is whether or not you're a good one. That's the question. And some of you probably do really bad theology. Undergirding your life are wrong thinking patterns, wrong beliefs, wrong things that, 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 that you claim to hold to, and that ends up affecting then how you live. And I want you to understand that every single person here today does theology in one way or another. When I was in Michigan... The state of Michigan was wrestling with whether or not to allow creationism to be taught in public schools as a parallel teaching along with evolution in the science class. And there was a piece of legislation that was in the, the state legislature to allow that to happen. And a news reporter called me and wanted a quote to know what I thought of it. Well, my quote never got in the paper because here's what I said. The person said, so I want to know what you think about religion being brought into the science classroom. And my statement to the person was, with all due respect, sir, Religion has been in the science classroom for years. In fact, to say that religion isn't in the science classroom would be to not really understand what evolution really is. It's a religious system with a science front. And the result, I said, is that I have no problem with creation being brought into the science classroom because religion is already there. Lots of silence and no quote. So that's how it happened. <laughs> But the reality is, though, that's, that's, that's important for us to think about because undergirding our lives is theological truth. It's propositional truth. It's things that God tells us about ourselves. And one of our challenges in life is that we have to understand that how we see life is not dependent on what we think or how we want it to be. It is that the Scriptures inform how we are to live. And therefore, we have to know what the Bible says about who we are in order that we would know how to live. And we see this in chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ. That's a propositional truth statement. A, a truth statement that's going to lead then to a target that's then going to lead to some trust. Or think of it this way. It's a positional thing that's going to relate to a priority thing. A position, that's going to lead to priority, and then it's going to lead to practice. So undergirding us are these basic truths within the Word of God. Verse 1 gives us the first one. If then you have been raised with Christ. So number one is this, you were raised with Christ. We've seen this before and talked about it in the weeks previous, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but it simply means that when Jesus rose from the dead, you rose from the dead if you've received Christ as your Savior. 
It means that you have a new power, a resurrection power, a newness of life that you didn't have before. You have an ability to live a new life. And the result is that just as Jesus is alive to God, those of us who are in Him are alive as well. That's why I said a number of weeks ago, I want you to live vicariously, right? I want you to live through Christ. Because when He was raised, you were raised, and you have a new power. So you were raised with Christ. The second thing that we see is the Scripture also tells us here that we died with Christ. Look at verse 3. Propositional truth, positional truth, number 3. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So number 2 here is that you died with Christ. It means that when Jesus was put into the tomb and He died, you shared in that death. Now, why is that significant? Well, because death is the severing of relationships. It's where the moment when you move from this life to the next one. And death is the bridge, so to speak, where you move from this life to the next, and there are no do-overs when it comes to death, right? It's a permanent separation. No do-overs. Some of you are um, doing the final golf events of your summer, right? And there's a do-over in golf. It's called what? Mulligan. Good. How many mulligans do you get in a game, Jay? What? What? One per nine. Okay. Most people I golf with take many more than that, right? In fact, I don't really ever play golf. I'm always practicing golf. So I take many mulligans. Listen, there's no mulligans when it comes to death. You don't get a do-over. So why is that significant? Well, because what, what Paul is saying here is this. When Jesus died, there was a permanent separation. There was a no longer a do-over. You can't go back. It's this idea that everything that Jesus was, you were in Him, and when He died, you died. And therefore, the power, the constraints, the control of everything that's in the world, all that sin is, Jesus took it and He severed it. No mulligans, no do-overs, no going back. It's a permanent freedom. And then you were raised with Him and given a new power. And what I want you to get is that undergirding your life, underneath who and what you are, are these propositional truths about I was buried with Christ, I've been raised with Him, so that now I can walk in newness of life. And part of the challenge in the book of Colossians that we've got to get into our mind and hearts is the fact that we have this positional, propositional truth that Paul is talking about that then ought to affect how we live. That these truths serve as the foundation for us then to walk in newness of life. The third foundational truth is this, that your life is hidden with God. Verse 3. He not only says, for you died, he also says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. What does this mean? It means that your life is placed inside the person and work of Christ. A little background here, in in Paul's day and in many secular cultures, people often believed that their lives on earth were merely a shadow of another world life. They, They believed that the life that they were living on the earth was directly connected to this other world kind of a life, sort of like the shadows of, of life and Socrates' understanding of philosophy. 
a great effect on how people thought in life. And they had this idea that there's this other world going on, and my life here on earth is directly connected to this other world. And when things go well in this other world, things go well here. And when they go bad in this world, they go bad in, in the present world in which I live. And Paul may very well here be using the same kind of analogy, playing into the mindset and the frame of reference that people would have during this time in history. But here's the difference. The other world object to which our life is connected is none other than the person of Jesus Christ himself. So it's not that you just have some other life of your own. It's that you, Paul says, are hidden with Christ in God. In other words, you are placed in him, and the result is that you are kept safe. The word hidden means secret. It's, it's in the perfect tense, which means that it happened in the past, but it has sweeping implications for the present. It, it, it took place formerly, but now it has direct application in your life. And what Paul is indicating here is that your life, your spiritual life, is hidden, contained, put, and kept secure in the person of Christ, and that the otherworldliness in terms of where you live, the other place that you live, is really in the person of Jesus. And the phrase, with Christ in God, means that we not only share in His death and His resurrection, but we share with Him in His present position as He's there with the triune Godhead. So that all the power of Christ as a fully functioning member of the Trinity, the full power of Christ is leveraged to keep you hidden inside of Himself. So when it says, hidden with Christ in God, it means, bottom line, you are one hundred percent safe safe which is why the apostle paul says nothing can separate us from the love of god in christ jesus our lord so you're hidden with christ in god it's sort of like what happens when we play a hide and go seek at our house and and one of our little the little ones usually you know they're the ones who can't really go and hide by themselves so they say dad can i hide with you right so i have fond memories of hiding with our smallest child, you know, as they're, you know, I'm like, quiet, 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 you know, because I want to win hide and seek, you know, so, and the idea is they're hiding with dad, and because they're hiding with dad, they're safe, they're secure, the personal presence of Christ in our lives is with us, and you are hidden in him, so in one respect, it means that you're secret yet, it doesn't fully appear what you are, one day that will be evident, but it means that for the present time, that you are absolutely safe and secure. You are hidden in Christ. And the reason why that truth is so important and why it undergirds us is because that means absolutely everything in our life is completely covered by the safety of who Jesus is. Which is a great motivation to give your life to go to a foreign mission field. It's a great motivation to give away money that you could have used to buy a car. It's a great motivation to relentlessly pursue the discipleship of your children. It's the great motivation to be bold in your witness because the bottom line is nobody can touch you. You're hidden in Christ. And this isn't meant to be some truth that you just sit around in a classroom and discuss and, and sort of think how great it is. This is meant to be a truth that liberates you to do unbelievable things for the sake of the glory of Christ. So undergirding us is first this idea of being raised with Him, then having been buried with Him, the final one, is that you will appear in glory in verse 4. Look at what it says. 
When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is called, in theological terms, the consummation. It's the eschaton. It's the coming of Jesus. It's the moment of history where the whole world sees something. It sees that the Bible was right. It sees Jesus coming with the whole host of heaven. And in that moment, the text says, you appear with him in glory. We will be perfect and sinless. We will experience eternal life. And at that moment, everything you've lived for, everything you've died for, everything you've given your heart for, now reaches its full consummation. And guess who you look like? You look like Christ. That's who. No more sin, no more challenges, no more discipline, no more suffering. You are free, you appear with Him in glory, and you're able to see Him because you are like Him. Listen to John 3, 1 John 3. Notice the parallels between the hiddenness, the the display, and how we are then motivated. Listen, this is not truth that you should just intellectually process and say, Oh, I agree with that. This is stuff that forms the foundation then of how you live. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So get this. Church is filled with people who aren't finished products. So if you're perfect, please leave. (laughs) And if you think you are, you're not. So you've lied. So stay. Okay? It's great to know every Sunday you're coming to a group of people who are fundamentally not yet what they need to be. That's who we are. So church ought to be a place where it's okay to not be yet what you need to be. As opposed to putting on a mask and playing a game and how you doing? Oh, fine, fine. The reality is we aren't what we yet need to be. And First John goes on to say this. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. So you're like him, you see him as he is, and then hear what he says, and everyone who has, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You see how practical it is? It's that you move from this propositional truth to the reality of who Jesus is, and that informs how you live and what it means for you to walk in newness of life. So listen, life may be confusing, Life may be uncertain, life may be hard, but hear me, this is a future day and the outcome is fixed. You will appear with Him in glory. So now, take a step back and think of these four propositional truths. We've had, we've been raised with Him, that was the first one. Raised, you have buried with Him, then we have you're hidden with Him. And we have something that relates to you will appear with him in glory. Notice, College Park, that we have both past, present, and future. Past, I was raised with him, I was buried with him. Present, it happened in the past, I was hidden with him, but as present, real realities, and future, I will appear with him in glory. When I looked at this, suddenly it dawned on me, God has me taken care of past, present and future 
The position that I have in Christ covers me, not just my past, but even my present and even my future. And when I looked at that, I stopped and I just, my heart said, God, you've got me. You got me. I can't squirm out of your hand. I can't wiggle out. I can't get out. Nothing the enemy can throw at me can ever take me out of this position. You've got me past, present and future. I'm safe. I'm secure. Woo! That's what I thought. So if God's got me like that, then I need to realize in my world in which I live, He's got a lot of other stuff in control, <laughs> besides my soul, right? So this last week, Wednesday, oh, I'm so happy. We closed on our house in Michigan. It's over. We're done. And uh, the road back to Michigan's been burned, right? So it's over, right? All that. And, uh, you know... As I began to understand fully the couple who was buying our house and everything else, it was just it was amazing. God, over and over, has shown himself to be so faithful. But he, like he picked a particular couple and said, i got a mission for you folks in South Carolina. I need you to buy a house in Fenville, Michigan. And here you go, right here. And the more I learned about them, the more I realized how perfectly God had just ordained all of that. And I found my heart just saying, you know what? God's got it, Mark. And I found myself looking at that and going, you know what? If God's got that, he's got a lot of other stuff in control too, right? And I think that one of the things I need to get around my mind and heart a little better, and probably you do as well, or at least you need to understand that you do, is that the reality is God's got our life in control, and it's best for us just to take our hands off it and say, God, you got it. Not just let go and let God, but to say, God, you're sovereign, you're in control, you're supreme. If you can keep me secure, raising me, burying me in Christ, having me be hidden in Christ, and then glorying. Lord, I'm going to appear with you in glory. If that's how you've treated me, isn't a house a little thing to take care of? Or a wayward son? Or a marriage that's on the brink? Or someone's heart? You need to pray, God, you're the God of the supreme universe and you got it all in control and I just simply need to pray and seek your face. And what Paul says is this orientation of our hearts, this orb of our life is grounded on this concept of positional proposition, propositional truth. To cultivate Christ-centeredness, we have to begin by understanding what's at the foundation. Now, the second thing here in the text is this. Paul then says, all right, so orient your life around this stuff. Because this doctrinal truth stuff was not meant just to be something you mentally assent to. This was meant to be lived. In other words, what Paul wants us to do is to take the orientation of our hearts and our minds, and he wants us to point it towards the centrality of Jesus. He wants us to take everything within our hearts, and if this is true, then our hearts and our minds have to be directed towards where this truth was designed to point us towards. The reason Jesus made you safe, and the reason the Father did all of this, was not just to make you happy. He did it to free you to serve Christ, that's why. He didn't do this just so that you would feel good about yourself. He did this to make you realize you can't do this on your own. You need me. And because of it, the, less, the rest of your life is spent glorying in who I am. So the orientation of my heart radically changes. You know what I mean by orientation? When I was in uh, grade school, I took a class called orientation where you take a compass and a map. And how many of you remember having a class like that? Remember that? Wow, like four of us. Great. Well... <laughs> That's wonderful. So, yeah, so we're the people who really don't ever get lost, 
wrong. So let me tell you something. Um, when I'm that orientation class taught me something that's really valuable for navigating my way through, through a city, especially when I don't know the city well, and that is that I orient myself on the map. Now, my wife and I approach directions in the city very differently. She um, prints out Google Map directions, and she likes the language, the words, right? Turn left at so-and-so. And that stuff, that drives me nuts. I think that's like the worst way in the world to find a location. In fact, I'm convinced that's the best way to get yourself lost, okay? So let me tell you a better way um, to be able to not get lost, all right? It is this. I'm in trouble when I get home, okay? Just so you know. <laughs> Here's what I do. I take the map, and as I'm traveling down a road, when I make a turn, I turn my map. Now, this happened in the first service. All the ladies laughed. Now, I don't understand that, because men are really good at directions, aren't we men? So I turn the map, and the reason is so that when I'm going down the road, I, I don't have to decide if I've turned left or right. I can see on the map, I've turned the map, and so then I can turn left or turn right. So it works beautifully. I'm telling you, this is the best way to never get lost, okay? Except when one thing happens, and that's when you turn it too far. And then when you turn it too far, everything's messed up, and then you have to go back and ask yourself, okay, i got to know one thing, where is what? North, bingo, that's right. Or where is my GPS? That's the other thing, right? So where is north? Because the north helps you to reorient the map. And you can compare your little, like I have a little compass thing on my, on my dash. I can compare that. Okay, so north, they're matching up. And so that north becomes the ultimate reference point of the orientation on my map. And when it comes from a spiritual standpoint, what Paul is saying here is this. Is the true north, the orientation of your heart, is Christ. He is the center. He's the true north. He's the one that helps you to reorient your map. Listen to me. When your marriage falls apart, He's the true north in your life. When you're trying to figure out how to beat sin in your life, Jesus is the true north. When you want to know how to be able to to help raise godly kids, Jesus is the one who orients your map of life. And what Paul says, Therefore, set your mind on these things and seek those things that are above. Number one. Seek those things that are above. The way this is worded in the original language means to continually practice. Continually practice. It means over and over and over. I'm to constantly be seeking those things that are above. It refers to the orientation of the will. The direction of the heart. It means to strive after, to desire, to endeavor. It's the same word that's translated in Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God, right? The idea is that I'm I'm pursuing... This kingdom, this mentality, this orientation of my heart is this idea that it's not about me, it's about Jesus. It's that I'm seeking after and striving after the person and work of Christ. He's the object, he's the goal. So listen, the reason that you have your family, your car, your house, your income is for service to Christ. The reason why you have breath in your lungs The reason why you have a beating heart is to serve Christ. Life is about Jesus, not who? Me. The word look would be kind of the way that we use it in our present day English. In the same way that the word seek means to seek after, the word look means to strive after or to somehow desire something. For instance, when we're traveling in the car and my kids are in the you know, back part of the van, and they're goofing around, right? They're, you know, drawing imaginary lines and things like that, you know. This is my side, this is your side, you know. Or when I was a kid, you know, my sister would say, um, you know, don't touch me. I'm like, okay, 
I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. You know what I mean? That kind of a thing. Really wicked stuff that happens in vans and cars and things like that. And about that time, I'm going to say to my kids, hey, are you guys looking to get in trouble? Right? There's the word, look. means, do you have a desire? Are you, you striving for getting in trouble? That's what it means. You're doing things that then you desire something else. Or here's another illustration of it. Uh, Savannah has this thing that I call the daddy twirl. And this is something just, I guess, innately in girls, um, which I'm still trying to figure what all that means. But she comes in my office on Sunday mornings, and a couple weeks ago, she walked in. She goes, hi, Daddy. And then she did this. And I was like, what is that, you know? And Sarah said, well, she's looking for you to say something about her dress. I was like, oh, okay, it's just like chick code. Gotcha, okay. So I, I, so I, so I said, oh, honey, you're... Your dress is so pretty. It, you look so, and she's all, you know, like this. And I'm feeding her wicked, sinful heart, right? Because she's, she's looking, right, for affirmation. She's looking for it. And what Paul says here is this. Look, if, if this is the foundation of your heart, then you need to seek after the person and the work of Christ and his lordship. In the same way that a little girl spins for her dad, looking for his approval. In the same way that little boys in a back seat look to bug, Paul says you need to passionately pursue the kingdom of Christ. That the orbit of your life is not you, it's Jesus. And that you are seeking those things that are above. It means that your, your mindset, your, your, your frame of reference is I want to be able to seek the person of Jesus and advance his kingdom. It means that there is a real place with a real Savior who is really powerful and He reigns over all. And those who know Him have a will that is bent to serve Him. In other words, you want a word that summarizes this orbit? It's this word. And oh, how I want you to get it in your minds and hearts. It is the word Lord. Say that with me. Lord. College Park, our world needs to see people who not only believe in Jesus, our, our world needs to see a, a church that not only believes in the Bible. Our world needs to see people who believe in the Lordship of Christ. Who say, the orbit of my life is Jesus. That He is the supreme ruler of the universe. He owns everything. He is supreme and sovereign over all. That everything exists for His glory, including me. And that even when the hard stuff comes my direction, even when things that don't make sense to me happen to me, that I can submit myself under His Lordship because I don't live for me, I live for Him. That is the fundamental difference between you and somebody who doesn't know Christ. They live for themselves, you live for Christ. You don't live a same kind of life as they live. You lead a different life because the orbit of your life has been radically shifted. That means that everything, your career, your car, your kids, your employment, your entertainment, your income, your marriage, your money, your priorities are all seen through this lens of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that the bent of your heart and will has been tipped towards who Jesus is. Meaning... That Christ changed the orientation of our will. He changed the orientation of our desires. And now we have to relentlessly fan into flame this desire to magnify the worth of Jesus Christ. And can I just remind you, all of your life and all of eternity spent magnifying the worth of Christ will never be sufficient for how much He really is worth. Then, Paul says, set your mind on these things. What does this mean? 
It means that I intentionally focus my mind and heart on the things of Christ. Not only does it mean the bent of my will, but it now means my attention, my affection. I'm a, I'm a relentless researcher, as the people on the search committee knew. <laughs> Poor Eric Edgel got more phone calls from me in the search process about things about com- the community and College Park and everything else. In fact, my wife would tell you that at, time, I'm a, at times I'm an obsessive researcher. In fact, if I'm going to buy a car... I'm going to know everything there is to know about that car. If I'm going to buy a dog, I'm going to know everything there is to know about that dog. If I'm going to come over to your house, I'm going to know everything there is to know. No. (laughs) I am a relentless researcher. In fact, when I'm considering doing something, it's almost my my focus gets in on that. I'll be on the Internet, and my wife sometimes will be like, when is this going to be over? I mean, it's just like so consuming. And what Paul says is our life is a lifetime of relentless obsession with the person of Christ. And the reason that it's annoying when you're doing a cars or a dog or some other sort of, you know, research project is because at the end of the day, it, it, maybe it helps you make a decision, but it's not really worthwhile. But listen, at the end of the day, understanding who Christ is and being obsessed with him, he's the only thing in the universe that you can be obsessed with and have it not be sinful. Because nothing is more glorious than Him. To set our minds on means to think about, to focus our attention upon. It it also includes what you love, what you have affection for. In fact, some of you probably memorized this passage this way. Set your affections on things above. And the King James, when it was written in the 17th century, that was a great word to use because it meant the combination of the mind and heart and will. In our day, it just means emotions. And I I wish that it still meant the same, because I like the word affection, meaning everything that I am, I think, I feel, I, 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 I am, is wrapped up in this word affection. It means the focus of my life, the trajectory of my heart, the wellspring of my emotions are all focused on Christ, that my affection in life is directed to Him. And Paul says that you have to set your mind on these things. Because listen, your heart and mind in neutral will shrink. So just because you know this propositional truth stuff, and just because it's operational and real, doesn't mean you appropriate it and use it. It means that I have to use the power of the Holy Spirit. i got to hoist a sail and catch the wind of the Spirit's movement. I've got to be able to set my mind intentionally on things above. I've got to think about this stuff because if I'm not careful and I just put my brain in park and just let the world, the flesh, and the devil throw things at me, my soul will shrink. I have to realize that I'm in a war to think rightly and therefore I've got to put the right stuff in my mind and heart or my soul will start to go the wrong direction. Spiritual drift is natural. And yet God, by His Spirit, has changed the orientation of our heart, and all it takes is a right message, a good time in the Word, an intimate prayer time, and your heart begins to soar. And there are some of you here today where the altitude of your life has started to fall, and I want you to hear the call today to turn it back up, pull the rudder back up, and begin to seek the things that are above again, and set your mind on things that are above. So there's a truth issue, there's a target issue, finally there's a trust issue. Peace. And here's where I just want to make this very practical. You might say, okay, so how do I do this? How do I do this? Let me give you some suggestions. I don't have these on the overhead. I'm just going to give you some, a few, and whichever ones work for you, take those. I, I just hope that maybe this week in some way you'll say, 
you know what, I want to set my mind in a new way on things above and not on things in the earth. The first would be this. Hey, we need to get passionate about our position in Christ. We need to get passionate about our position. We need to realize what's underneath here. Celebrate it. Sing about it. Talk about it in glory. In it, because what's undergirding us is some unbelievable truth. And some of you need to get seriously pumped up about your position in Christ. Because newsflash, this is really important. And it's how to get in your heart. Some of you woke up this morning you were so excited because the Colts were playing tonight. That's the first thought out of your brain. Okay, that's too personal. So <laughs> you woke up and you there was this you had to drag yourself to church. And the reality is when we come together, beloved, we are celebrating positional things that we need to be able to embrace and say, Yes, this is what I live for. That's what struck a chord when we said that Jesus moves people from death to life. And listen, we've got to celebrate that. Second, we also have to celebrate that God changed the orientation of my will. I want to thank God all the time that you changed my heart and it once was bent out of conformity, now you bent it into conformity. Third, pray. Nothing, I think, does a better job of reorienting the heart than pray. Than prayer. Or when we pray. Next, look for things that cause unnecessary spiritual distraction. And some of them you may want to give up temporarily and some even permanently. Maybe this week you'd say, you know what, for this entire week, I'm just going to turn the radio off. And on the way into work, although the radio is not bad, I'm not saying that real Christians don't listen to the radio. Okay, I preached on that for two weeks. What I am saying is that some of you may just want to say, you know what, for this week, I'm going to set my mind on things above and use this time that I would usually just listen to the radio and just park my mind. Find ways to direct your attention to things that are of God and not to the earth. And here's another one. Pray. <laughs> Did I say that already? Here's another one. Sing. Sing often. One of the things that I found myself doing over the years is humming a tune as I'm walking. And I've even gone on a hospital book call before and been in, the, in, a, in an elevator as I'm humming a particular hymn because singing a song helps me to think on things that are above. Next, pray. Next, be sure you are spending time in the Word. Nothing like the Word of God to reorient your mind and heart and to set you rightly on the path of thinking correctly about who God is. Next, can you guess what's coming? Pray. Memorize Scripture. The reason we have the core verses is for you to start saturating your mind and your heart with the Word. Here's another one. Pray. Pray spontaneously. Let this one, here's one. When you get up in the morning, let the first, when you've put your feet in the ground, pray immediately and thank God that you're alive. <laughs> start, even though you may not feel like it. So thank God that you're alive. And when you get back into bed, pull your feet up and pray again to thank God that He's given you grace all throughout the day. This morning my alarm went off, or excuse me, my alarm didn't go off. It was set for 5 o'clock at night. That's not good. And I woke up at 5.30. Boom, something woke me up. As I got out of bed, the first thing I did is said, Lord, thank you. Just like that. Thank you. Because if I probably, if I would have gotten up at 8 o'clock, I would have sinned all the way here, right? So thank you, God, for sparing me. That Read great books. Listen, the news is the same from 6 o'clock to 11 o'clock. Nothing changes in four hours. <laughs> Read a good book, especially one that's from another century. 
Because people who have been of another century have things to teach us. And books that last and have eternal value are books that have stood the test of time. Or find a godly man or woman and ask if you could spend some time with them. See, the reality is we all need to seek the things that are above and set our minds on the right things. And the way that that happens is by us understanding that undergirding our life is this truth, this target of our minds and heart, and this trust. That there's truth undergirding us. We have a target to strive towards. And we have to take one step at a time in trusting that with God's help, our life can orbit around the most valuable person in the world. That person is Christ. There's a... um a principle in aeronautics called the Bernoulli principle. It's this. The reason the wing is shaped the way that it is on an airplane is because as air travels over top of it, it creates a vacuum that causes airplanes to rise up. That principle is really important. Otherwise, your plane falls. And the reality is that that plane, as it moves across the country, the speed of that plane allows for it to remain aloft because of the principle that's in play. But without the speed, the airline or airliner begins to dip. And some of you, the speed of your life in terms of seeking Christ has slowed that the airline that you're on, your own heart, has begun to lose altitude. And the message you need to hear today is this. Look, it's time to be intentional about seeking the things of God. It's time to be intentional about setting your mind on these things and pulling the rudder up and focusing your heart again on the person and work of Christ because at the end of the day, nothing's more valuable than Jesus. He's worth it. He's worth your thought. He's worth your energy. And he's the one that at the end of the day is your Lord and Savior. He's the one that did all of this. And without him, you have nothing. And Paul says, so set your mind on him. Set your mind on him. Lord, help us this morning. to pull out of a potential downturn that some of us are in and to pull up and find new levels of spiritual altitude. I pray, Lord, that today we would see what undergirds us and that even right now you'd begin to draw some people back to you whose spiritual lives have begun to falter. I pray that tonight or maybe tomorrow morning there would be an army of people who would approach the Word with a fresh resolve who maybe this morning sensed within their soul a downward plummeting sense and that today you would pull them back up and by your Spirit would remind them, I did all of this for you because I want you to seek the things that are above. So give us new resolve and creative ideas for you, Lord Jesus, to be exalted in fresh ways. Thank you, Christ, that you are the one who orients our will and we want you to be the center of every orbit of our life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.